You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. This is God's word. Good morning, everyone. As you know, as we've been going through this teaching through the Gospel of Mark, we have called it Jesus Says. And as we've gone through this narrative, we are pausing in certain places where we see that Jesus speaks to us. And here in our passage today, he actually isn't the one speaking. They go up on a mountain. Jesus takes his inner circle on the top of a high mountain, and they're enveloped in this dark cloud. And we don't hear Jesus' voice. Instead, we hear God the Father's voice who says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so God the Father is the one speaking, and he says, listen to Jesus. And this seems straightforward enough, listen to Jesus, but so much more is going on here in this passage. This is spoken in the midst of really what is this surreal moment. Jesus is transfigured before them. He is changed and his clothes shine brighter than the sun. And it's just the strangest and most bizarre and supernatural event that you can think of. And let's be honest, it's really the kind of event that you only see in the Bible. It's something you even come to expect in the Bible, something strange, something supernatural, something out of this world. And two ghosts appear before Jesus and James and Peter and John. Uh, A great cloud envelops them. God the Father speaks from the cloud, and then they go down the mountain as if nothing has ever happened. It's so much a Bible story. It would be odd to hear of this story anywhere else in the morning news uh, because it's in the Bible. It's, it's so easy just to think of it as odd and different, but not really spectacular. And I don't want it to lose its oddness. I want it to keep its strangeness. And I want it to be strange so that we can understand Mark's purpose and intention in telling us this story. What is his purpose? Why would he tell us this strange story? Well, it's here to teach us, like anything else in Scripture, it's here to teach us. But what does this scene teach us? It's here to teach us three things. First, the dangerous misconception, the important proclamation, and the glorious expectation. Let's look at what Mark wants to teach us today. First, the dangerous misconception. So this misconception happens with Peter. He reads the situation completely wrong, doesn't he? He says, Jesus, this is a big deal. What has happened here? I mean, here you have changed right before our eyes, and Moses is here, and Elijah is here. Let's build three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. 
And as Peter is telling this amazing idea, the voice of God bellows from this cloud and says, virtually, be quiet, Peter. Jesus is, listen to Jesus. If only God could interrupt us like this when we are doing something foolish. Just stop what you're saying and listen. I'm reminded of the end of Star Wars, Return of the Jedi, episode 6. And right after the Death Star is destroyed and the galactic civil war has ended, the galaxy celebrates. You remember this scene? They're outside and everyone's there and there's just this huge party. And during the celebration, Luke Skywalker sees a vision, a vision of three spirits. The spirits of his fallen father, the young Anakin Skywalker, Darth Vader, his mentor, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and the alien Jedi Master, Yoda. And the story and background of this scene is so important. And I remember the first time I ever watched episode six, The Return of the Jedi, I only watched the last five minutes of the movie. I don't know how it happened. I, I came in and I watched the end and it was very strange. I didn't know who these people were and what they did or why their ghosts were relevant to the whole story. I had a lot of questions. Who are these people? Uh, why are they spirits? And why is everyone seem to be excited to see them? Well, likewise, there's a lot going on in this passage. We need to know more than this strange and unique event that's taken place. We need to know why it's these figures who have appeared on the mountain and the significance of Jesus' transfiguration and the glory that he shows. Well, let's look first at the significance of Moses. What's going on with Moses? Moses, as you know, he's most famous for leading God's people out of slavery in Egypt, parting the Red Sea, receiving the Ten Commandments from God. Pretty great resume that Moses has. And here's how the events unfolded when Moses received the Ten Commandments from God. He goes upon the high mountain on Mount Sinai. Uh, Yahweh, as God is called in the Old Testament, he descends on the mountain in a cloud. And he stands with Moses on the mountain. And as, as Moses comes down from the mountain, after being in the presence of the glory of God, in the presence of God, his face shines like the sun. He is glowing. His face is glowing. And everyone looks upon him and is terrified, for they see that his face is really transfigured. It's changed. Every time Moses would meet with God, with God this is what would happen to him. He would glow, radiant like the sun. And what happened was Moses was reflecting God's glory. As God's glory was shining on Moses, he would become radiant and would still emanate this, this glory of God. He was reflecting the glory of God the way that, that a hot iron would glow after sitting in some hot ambers for a while. So he glows with the glory of God. Well, look at Elijah. What do we remember about Elijah, the man on the other side of Jesus? Moses represents the, the glory of the law of God. Moses represents the prophets of God. The prophet's main role is to proclaim the glory of God, to be a mouthpiece for God. And Elijah challenged the prophets of the false god, Baal, on the, on the Mount Carmel, another mountain. And on that mountain, it was Elijah against 450 prophets of this false god. And they agreed to a test. It was Elijah agreeing to a test of the false prophets for the false god, uh, Baal. And they said, let's figure out whose god is more glorious, whose god is better. Both of them built an altar and 
and an offering on that altar, and both would call out to their God to, to strike the, uh, the altar with fire. And whoever, whoever's, whoever's, uh, can, can get their God to, to consume this offering, that was the true God. Well, the Baal worshipers go first. And they pray to their God. They pray to Baal. They call down the power of Baal and nothing happens. And Elijah says to them, this is no joke. He says, maybe your God is going to the bathroom and he just couldn't show up. He's mocking them. He's instigating. He's making fun of their God. And now it's Elijah's turn. And he goes a step further. He takes the offering and the wood upon which it sits And he douses the offering with water. He soaks the wood. He soaks the altar. He prays down fire. And God sends fire from heaven, burns up the offering, and even evaporates all the water. Well, more can be said about these two men, of course. But here is the significance. The stories of Moses and Elijah are here to to show us the glory of God. The one and only glory and power and majesty of God. And on the backdrop of Mark 9 is this glory of God that is shown here on the mountain. But the way that God's glory is represented here in this transfiguration is much different than we see with Moses and Elijah. Where Moses and Elijah would Uh, reflected God's glory. Jesus here produces the glory of God. He is the one that shines the glory of God rather than reflecting it. You see, when we look at the full moon in all of its glory and all of its light, casting light upon the earth, we, we look at the moon and say how glorious this moon is tonight. But really, the glory is not in the moon. The moon is merely reflecting the glory and the light and the heat of the sun. This is where Peter missed it. He looks at these heroes of the faith, Moses and Elijah, and he puts Jesus right among them as a hero of the faith. He sees these three men as equally being able to portray the glory of God. But Moses reflected the glory of God like a mirror. Elijah reflected the glory of God like a mirror, like a trumpet, Uh, sounding out the glory of God. But here, Jesus is the glory of God, not just reflecting it, he produces it. The brilliance of God, the radiance of God, the beauty and power of God, represented not in things, but represented here in a person that has never been done before. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This means that Jesus is the exact representation of the glory and weight and power of God, the brilliance and majesty of all that God is, the beauty and nature and mind of God enveloped in the flesh of Jesus Christ. There's no other way to see the glory of God more perfectly and completely than by looking at Jesus. And in this way, Jesus is unlike anyone else that has ever lived. Any other great prophet, any other great leader, any other great savior or rescuer, 
See, Jesus is not one more person in your life among many qualified people who point you to God. He is the glorious God to whom everything and all of creation points. And if it doesn't point to Jesus, it is wrong. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that if there's, any, there's, if there's anything absolutely significant in your life that doesn't point to Jesus, that it's wrong. It means that there's no other opinion, no other perspective that matters more or should matter more in our life than that of Jesus's. The dangerous misconception that Peter falls into and we often fall into is to view the authority of Christ and his rule and role in our life as just another good voice to point us in how we should live rather than the absolute authority, the absolute final word. I don't know how the Bible and Mark could help us understand in a clearer and better way that Jesus is not like Moses and not like Elijah or not like any person who has ever lived than by God telling Peter to just shut up and be quiet and listen to Jesus. This is essentially what Jesus, or that God the Father is saying from the cloud by interrupting Peter. And so Peter's misconception of the role and person of Christ and who he is leads to the proclamation from God the Father to those who are standing and really to us. We look at the important proclamation. What is proclaimed here? Well, God cuts into Peter's thinking with a, a bold statement. The correction hangs on a simple phrase that we've heard before. We hear the Father's voice come down from heaven at Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3. And he says this identical phrase, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But here he adds the phrase, Listen to him. I think the late theologian R.C. Sproul summarizes this point most clearly by saying this, When God says something, the argument is over. When the disciples look up, they don't see Moses and Elijah, for they have vanished before them, and they only see Jesus. The amazing event seems to end too quickly with so many questions unanswered. It is such an amazing thing, and they're talking, and we don't even know what they're talking about, and there's so many questions. Well, what did they talk about? You ever wondered that? What would Jesus talk to Moses and Elijah about? What are they asking him what conversations are happening and where did they go and why did they go so quickly? Do you wonder those things? The only answer that we need to know to those kinds of questions are this. Who cares and it doesn't matter. Who cares what they're talking about? It doesn't matter where they went or why they left. The point is made so clearly. We don't need to go to seminary or need training to figure it out. You look up and who do you see among all of the heroes of your faith and all of the great voices and all of the great mouthpieces of God's word and all of the people who have good advice to us and we look up and who matters? We should see Jesus only. Moses and Elijah have gone away and Jesus is there. Listen to him. He's the one that surpasses all of them. Listen to him as the supreme interpreter of God. Of, of scripture and supreme authority, the supreme opinion, the only one who matters. Moses and Elijah here are clearly supporting roles 
in Christ, in the story of God. They're supporting roles to Jesus. They're the ones that are complimenting Jesus. They're the ones supporting him. They're the ones that are pointing us to listen to him rather than one among many other great voices in our life. You know, for you, it might not mean much that he is the first among Moses and Elijah, but if you grew up in the Jewish home and someone said Moses and Elijah are in a supporting role to this Jesus of Nazareth, you would gasp, you would freeze with awe, with thinking that Moses and Elijah are somehow secondary to Jesus. Because they were the heroes among heroes. They were the best of the best. They were the ones, the, they were the rescuers of God's people. What is it equivalent for Christians today, I wonder, to have heroes like this, people we look to and turn to? We don't really have people so much anymore. Some have favorite theologians, of course, that we look up to and Christian writers. We might even have uh, sports idols and things like that. But we have something else, I think, that carries a greater weight in our life than people. And those might be passions and dreams and emotions and aspirations and hopes and fears. There are other things that direct our life stronger than people, like our freedoms, our money, our appetites. For us, I I think our idols so much aren't people, but our identity is often wrapped up in more of our dreams and our comforts, our aspirations of how we desire our life to go. Our identity is in our passions. We say, my life is in focus. My life is as it should be when I'm doing what I love, when my work is satisfying. Our identity is in our family. We might say, my, my life is in focus and as it should be when I have a, a spouse, a dog, and two to three kids. Our identity might be in our exercise of our freedom. Being able to say, my life is in focus when no one is telling me what to do or where to go or how to live I want to do as I desire in my work, in my free time, with my money, with my gifts. You see, God wants to cut into this way of thinking. He wants to do some surgery on us. He wants us to look at Jesus and on either side of him, he wants us to see our fears and our hopes, our aspirations, our passions, our identity, our uh, self-image. He wants us to see all of those things standing beside Jesus and he wants those things to vanish in the background so that we only see Jesus and God saying, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. When it comes to Jesus, all of those things in your life that are important must be a supporting role to my agenda in your life through Christ through his word, and through his life lived out in you. He's not just another great teacher or a great leader or a great example among many voices that seek to direct our lives. Here's an important question we should ask ourselves at this point. When it comes to your opinions and aspirations in life, do you let God interrupt you? I mean, do you let him interrupt you mid-sentence? When you start to tell God all the things that you want and desire, when, when you start to ask him questions, and do you let him interrupt you? 
do you let him stop you mid-sentence and say, this is my son. This is the one that I have given all things to. All of my glory, my majesty, my power and authority, it all rests with Jesus. Listen to him, follow him, do as he says. That is my agenda for you. By interrupting Peter, God is telling us every voice and every message, every idea must assume a supporting role when compared to Jesus. If Jesus is the only one standing, if he is the glory of God, if we are commanded to listen to him, then if anything we believe or know or pursue contradicts Jesus in the slightest way, then those things are always wrong. They must always fade into the background of his plans for us. We're often, misunderst- often misunderstood Jesus' role and identity. We have misconceptions for who he is and what he came to do. We hear this proclamation and now let's look at the expectation, the glorious expectation. Jesus is trying, uh, tying this glorious moment with another glorious moment. In fact, it's the most glorious moment. He immediately points to the event of his own death and resurrection. You see, we we didn't read this verse, but immediately after the transfiguration, after verse 8, we look at verse 9, which says this, And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So what is happening here is that Jesus is pointing them to something that is yet to come. Something that this, this glorious event points to. What a sentence like this. Don't tell anybody what you just saw until I raise from the dead. And, and the gospels tell us they didn't even know what this means. What do you mean when you raise from the dead? Does Jesus seem to to be the kind of guy who doesn't have a handle on life right now? Or does he seem like the kind of guy who's the king over creation, the glory of God, the authority, the governing, sustaining, uh, king of all kings, the one doing things for the glory of God to be seen and for the good of his people? It seems like a man who's in control of every moment, every second of his life, and every circumstance that would happen to him. He is orchestrating and driving The Apostle Luke tells us this same story, but he adds a little more detail in Luke chapter 9. He writes, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Jesus looks at Jerusalem. His transfiguration points to a greater glorious moment that would happen in Jerusalem. What is Jesus' most glorious moment in all of his life? Some would say here, the transfiguration where he showed the glory of God. Others would say his resurrection where he, where he rose from the, uh, the dead. But this passage should suggest that the event that demonstrates the glory of God most is the events of the cross, his crucifixion. Isn't it fascinating? Here's an important question to ask ourselves at this moment. What do you expect God to do for you? What do you expect would be God's most glorious work in your life? What are you waiting for him to do that he has yet to do? What do you want him to do? How do you you expect your life to go if you follow Jesus? Well, as you're thinking of that, listen to this. 
God's most glorious work in your life will not be how he makes your life shine, but how he applies the work of Jesus to your life and transform you to be more like Jesus. His most glorious work, his most wonderful and praiseworthy work will be to make you into the righteousness of God, to make you more like Jesus. Less self-focused and more Jesus-focused. Less worried about the future and more secure in his sovereign movement in your life. Basically, less like you and more like him. This is God's agenda for you. Not to polish you up, not to make you a better version of yourself, not to even give you comfort and serenity. His goal is to make you more like Jesus. He won't stop until that happens. His glorious work is to transform you more and more into a greater image and picture of Jesus. Is that your goal for your own life? Is your goal to decrease in the influence and opinion and word of Christ to increase in your life? For that is his goal for you. Have you embraced that goal? The goal that he has that he won't stop at anything to accomplish to take out the, the things that are like you, that are prone to evil and to wickedness, that are blemished and stained with sin, and to make you the glory of God. If you've spent much time with us at all or simply have done a little homework on our website to figure out who we are as a church, you'll notice a phrase, magnify God's glory, as one of our three most precious goals in our church. It's the first of three words bolted to the wall outside our sanctuary door. Magnify. It means to magnify the glory of God. It, it describes the chief aim of our church and why we exist. Because Jesus is the glory of God, Holy Cross exists not as an institution primarily aimed at helping you find serenity or community or even behavior modification or even happiness, but rather to magnify God's glory means that our aim in life is to embrace the glory of God manifested in Jesus, trusting in his work for us and his sacrificial death on the cross, and us being transformed more and more into the image of Christ, and knowing that the only thing that makes us right with God is not by becoming more glorious in ourselves through our self work, but through the righteousness of Christ and his grace alone. You see, Jesus is walking down the mountain and he has his eye on Golgotha, the hill outside of the city of Jerusalem, where he will be crucified. And he says, don't tell anybody what happened up there until I show you what happens down here. The passage becomes most clear, not be when we look at the transfiguration, but when we look where Jesus' eyes are looking, when we look on the cross. Even in this amazing moment of the transfiguration, the disciples are being prepared to embrace the reality, not of their own glory, but the reality of the cross. That our redemption, our glory, our salvation will be accomplished not through Jesus's glory, but through his suffering and death, not through a path of power to defeat our enemies, but a path of weakness, humiliation, and defeat. 
There's a key theme that Mark repeats in his narrative and shows to us. He touches on our heart's most, most precious appetite that we want God to do good to us. His glorious work to us that is completed, we think, through, through good things, through one celebration to the next. But Jesus shows us that God accomplishes his good in us through suffering, through putting to death sin in our life. The crown of glory only comes through the pain of the cross. And this means there is no Christianity without the cross. There is no Jesus without the cross. There is no relationship with God without the cross. There's no glory without suffering that comes from God pruning us and cutting away sin and convicting our hearts of sin and removing that, that, that sin from our life, from doing surgery on our hearts and exposing the things that we love too much, the things we're afraid of too often, the things that we crave when we should be craving Christ. There's no glory without the painful process of carrying our cross, denying ourselves as we read last week. Our life is in focus when it's aimed towards Jesus. Our life is not in focus when we're living true to our passions or our emotions or our dreams or our aspirations or being true to ourselves. but we see God's transforming power in our life through his son. It's only when we see God is removing things from us and making us more like Jesus that we can be sure that our life is truly in focus. See, the glory of God in scripture does meet, mean a sense of weightiness, a heaviness, but it also means a sense of beauty. God telling us to listen to Jesus he is telling us something weighty and threatening even that you need to listen. And if you desire the glory of God and the transformation of his power in your life, you, you must listen. But it, it commands obedience, but it also commands a, a sense of awe and beauty as we look upon Jesus. A sense of a godly fear as we look on him and we are frightened like the disciples, but frightened in such a way of seeing that there's no one that compares to Christ. There is no one who has, whose authority should weigh more in our life and it should terrify us, but we should see something beautiful as we look upon the brightness of who he is. At the heart of all that matters most is not a set of ideas, not a set of principles and aspirations, but it is a love relationship with Jesus. He lost his glory so that the very glory of God would come into our life and transform us from sinful people that we are and more and more into the character of Christ. Transformation is good news. They were terrified when they saw it, but they saw also that this has to be good for us to witness this. It is good news because no matter what you are going through, God has not abandoned you. You see, this is a beautiful scene. But as Moses and Elijah are taken back to heaven out of their sight, Jesus remains. Why? He remains for us. He remains to finish the work that God gave him to do. You see, rather than escaping with Elijah and Moses back to a place of glory and comfort, 
rather than escaping the pain of the crucifixion, he sets his aim on the cross to finish the work for our rescue. And hear this so simply. If he didn't abandon us then, but went to the cross, enduring the wrath of God and all of its shame, we can be certain he will never abandon us. He is with us. He did not give up on that mountain. He did not give up on the cross. Why do we think he would abandon us now? He's making us new. He has promised to restore all things. He's promised to clean our sins and to make us cleaner than any bleach on earth can clean us. This is what the passage tells us. He glowed with the glory of God that was whiter than any bleach could make. And he's doing that with us, purifying us, renewing us, washing our sins. And he will come back and he will bring us to himself and we will be made like him. Look for Jesus, rest in him, and let everything else fade in the distance.